Uh, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we want to read verses 36 through 47 this morning. And uh, this is, um, I hope, will be a continued encouragement for us as we think about all that's going on in our country and how to respond um, in light of what we see happening in the book of Acts. And so uh, let me read beginning in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll think through this again this morning uh, as we seek some encouragement from God's word. Acts 2 verse 36. It says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, <clears throat> excuse me, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are, um, excuse me, all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple." And break and excuse me, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. You know, I think all of us, especially those of us who are a little older, have experienced walking into a room and stopping and thinking, "What did I come in this room for?" And uh, so what I want to do in beginning this message is just to remind us of some things that have direct application to what we're going to talk about in light of what we see in this passage. And one of the things we have to continually remind ourselves of is what the, the gospel is. And that may seem obvious, but the reality is there are things about the gospel we continually lose sight of. And so the gospel, basically, you can kind of summarize it, summarize it in different ways, but we can say, first of all, that God sent his son to save us from sin and satisfy us in God. That God sent his son because we have two fundamental issues. We are enslaved to sin and we look for satisfaction apart from God. So he sent his son that we might be saved from sin and actually satisfied in God. And what he did so that we could be saved from sin and satisfied in God is, he lived the life, as we say many, many times, we, we, he lived the life that we could never live, which is perfect obedience to God. He died the death that we deserve to die on the cross, bearing our sin. He rose from the dead as the only Lord 
who rules and reigns, and only Savior, the only one who can save us from sin and satisfy us in God. And right now, he rules and reigns over everything for the glory of God and the good of his people. Even when things seem so chaotic, Jesus is reigning. And lastly, he will return one day, and he's going to judge all men. He's going to destroy evil. He's going to usher in heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God on earth. And that's why the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom, because God sends the king, Jesus, to do what has to be done so that we can be forgiven and enjoy the coming kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And those are the uh, realities of the gospel. Those those are the, the truths that we are to announce uh, The gospel is about proclaiming the reality of who Jesus is and what he did and the implications of that. And then to realize what God calls us to in light of that. He he calls us at the beginning to turn from our sin to God for mercy. Because we can't erase our sin. We just need to be forgiven. So we turn to God for mercy and we trust Jesus as our Lord and our Savior because that's who he is. We trust him for who he is. He's the only Lord and Savior, and we're called to entrust ourselves to him, give our lives to him. And then as Christians, we live every day resting in Jesus, or at least we're called to live every day, resting in Jesus in light of the pardon that we have, the perfection that he gives us, and the fact that God loves us just like he loves Jesus, all because of Jesus. We're to rest in that love, and we're to hope in God for the help that we need and all the troubles that we face and for the happiness our heart longs for, which means our satisfaction isn't found in other things, it's found in God. And God is continually working to show us that the things of this world will not satisfy us, that only he can do that. And then we're to pursue love. We're to seek to love the people in our lives. We're to seek to obey his word, submitting to what it says, and submitting to whatever God sends me, even if it's a COVID-19 pandemic, I submit to that and I seek to obey God's word in the midst of it. And then finally, we're called to endure. We're called, over and over the Bible says, we are to endure basically suffering and seduction. Because in this world, there will be suffering. That I just read this week about uh, someone a well-known Christian that walked away from the faith and is connected to suffering in this person's life. That's the temptation of trials and suffering is to cause us to walk away. But another another issue is pleasures. Um, Pleasures tempt us to walk away, thinking that there's satisfaction apart from God. And so the whole idea of God calling us to turn and trust rest and hope and love and then endure has great application to what we're going through in this country right now and great application to the context for what we see in Acts chapter 2. One of my favorite favorite quotes is by Lily Tomlin who uh, was a comedian and she said at one point, I always wanted to be somebody but now I realize I should have been more specific Everybody wants to be somebody, but we don't, we're not necessarily as specific as we ought to be about what uh, that person we want to be is. Well, 
I want to encourage us to think along these lines, and we'll see how far we get with this today. But the Bible encourages us, especially in light of what's going on in our own country. It certainly applies to what was going on in the book of Acts, to be patient, to be ordinary, to be different, and to be faithful. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. But all of those are very, very important. But I'd like to like you to look especially as we begin at verse uh, 40. If you look at verse 40, it says, And with many other words, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. He's given gifts um, of tongues and the proclamation of the gospel through different languages. And Peter is preaching to the people who have come together to find out what's going on. And so he's preached this message regarding the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate, celebrated just last Sunday. And at the end of that, it says in verse 40, And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so the context for being patient, being ordinary, being different, and being faithful is a perverse generation. Now, the word perverse there actually is the word from which, the Greek word from which we get our English word scoliosis. And scoliosis means you have a crooked problem, okay? The basic idea of the word perverse is crooked. And which is interesting when you think about it. Um, In our day and time, um, the controversy is over um, sexual orientation and sexual practice. And interestingly enough, those who adhere to a more traditional view of men and women being together are typically called straight. He's a straight guy, straight woman or whatever. Well, the Bible talks about the fact that when we deviate from God's order, uh, we're called crooked. And so Peter is saying here to... the people in this situation be saved from a perverse or crooked generation, not physically, but morally, a morally crooked or perverse generation. And so the the idea is that um, in the context of what we're going to talk about, about how the early church lived, they were to live that way when everyone else wasn't living that way when everyone else wasn't affirming their Judeo-Christian heritage, <laughs> that they were to live that way in a, in a context that was crooked, perverse, like we tend to see our culture becoming increasingly so. I mean, the reality is every generation is perverse. Every generation is filled with sinners. But some generations seem more perverse for various reasons. Uh, in this case, you've got... This generation that Peter is especially referring to is the generation that crucified the one who is the Lord and Messiah. That's a pretty perverse and crooked generation that would crucify God incarnate, uh, love incarnate. That's a pretty perverse generation. But all generations are perverse and crooked. But sometimes we just see it more and more. And I think in our day and time we're beginning to see a greater and greater deviation from God's straight morality that he calls us to, so to speak. 
and we realize just how perverse our society is getting in various ways. I read just this week about um, the pastor up in Canada. You may have heard about that situation. Pastor James Coates, who was arrested, spent over a month in jail because he was doing what we're doing right now, having church. Um, And it was in opposition to um, and wasn't in compliance with the health orders of Alberta, Canada. Well, they let him out of jail, but then they went and they locked up his church and they put a double fence around his church. Uh, so they let him out, but they, wasn't, they weren't going to let him continue doing what he's doing. Now, the interesting thing about that is if you look at the persecution of the church historically, many people would say most of the persecution of the church is not the church being persecuted because they worship Jesus. It's because they defy the state, that they are a threat to the state, that they are a hindrance to the agenda of the state. That's what's going on there. They're not locking up his church because he's preaching Jesus. They're locking up his church because, from their view, he's defying the state. And so that's... Obviously, uh, in our own country, we seem to be heading, headed in that same direction. There was an article that I read this week that was entitled, The Joy of Being Animal. And this, the uh, subtitle was, Human Exceptionalism is Dead. For the sake of our own happiness and the planet, we should embrace our true animal nature. And then the rest of the article talks about what they mean by that. Well, that's interesting to me in, in light of the fact that um, one of the big things that's being talked a lot about is the issue of climate change and environmentalism and the planet. And I would agree, we need to be good stewards of what God has given us. So I'm not saying there isn't any basis for trying to critique what we're doing or not doing. There is a basis for that. And yet, uh, there is a problem when a uh, planet becomes more important than people. That's when there's, there's an inversion, there's a perversion of what God says is the order of how we are to prioritize things. And so we see that spirit as well. Uh, we have the spirit of thou shalt not defy the state, growing stronger and stronger. We have the spirit of thou shalt not endanger the planet. And if you do, there's going to be consequences as well. And so That, I would say, is at least part of the kind of crooked generation that we're having to live in. And the Bible calls us uh, to live in a way that is pleasing to him, regardless of how perverse or crooked it might get. Um, In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, it says that the men who understood the times uh, had knowledge of what Israel should do. And this is one of those things that the Bible talks about in different ways. Um, the Bible calls us to think about what's going on around us and ask ourselves, how do I respond? How how am I to be a light in a perverse and crooked generation? How am I to do what God wants me to do? And so what I've been trying to do in this whole series on reset, reset means to change something, make it different, like you reset your password. And there are three things that basically I had in mind when I started the series The first thing is reset refers to being used a lot by world leaders of different kinds called the Great Reset. 
And it's a published agenda. It has a website. You can read about it on the Internet very easily, and you can find out the kinds of things that they're um, talking about. And basically what I'm trying to do is to help us to see what they're talking about in light of what the Bible says. And the Bible says that fallen man, in a sense, can be characterized uh, by what you might call the, the spirit of Babylon. Uh, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel, the word Babel there could also be translated Babylon, which is the way it's translated in the rest of the scriptures. And so the, the idea is you see that, that picture of Babylon or Babel throughout the scriptures, and even in the book of Revelation, it talks about when Christ comes back, he will destroy Babylon. Because it's a picture of mankind uniting in rebellion against God, trying to create their own utopia but trying to do it apart from God. And so it's important to realize that there are people who really think that what they're doing is good. We're trying to make the world better. We're trying to eradicate disease and, and injustice and social inequality and all those things. But they're trying to do it apart from God. They're trying to do it apart from the truth of God's word. They're trying to do it in the wisdom and the strength of man alone. It's kind of like what it says in Genesis 11 when they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The interesting thing about that is God says we need to go down and disperse them and confuse their languages because they are one people, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible to them. It's an interesting comment for God to make. But it speaks to the fact that united, mankind can achieve a lot of things. Some that might be actually good in various ways, but ultimately will be an attempt to create heaven on earth without God. And so, um, Obviously, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the great reset that is really the true reset. It's not something that man can bring about, but it's something that God promises to bring about. And we see that reflected in Second Peter 3, where it says, um, Paul, Peter says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, and that's what I've been trying to encourage us to do, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so there is the reset that mankind, sinful mankind, is trying to bring about. And they may or may not uh, make much progress I don't know. We'll see what kind of progress they make in trying to do that. But the real reset, the real hope for change is God says, I'm going to burn this world up and then I'm going to renew it and it's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And so the context or acts is the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and the reality that Mankind, either individually or corporately, is always trying to gain and achieve some kind of personal utopia or corporate utopia apart from God. And the question is, what do we do as we see people and see our society 
uh, trying to do that. And where Peter actually starts in Acts chapter 2 is he starts with repentance, which is what you might call a personal reset, a personal change of mind, which results in a change of lifestyle. And so that's why in um, verse 37, uh, the people in Acts chapter 2, they ask, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, they were convicted of their sin. And Peter says, what you need to do is you need to repent. You need to turn to God for mercy, and thereby receiving the forgiveness of your sins, which deals with the penalty of sin, and receive the Holy Spirit, the power of sin. True repentance isn't not isn't just wanting to be wanting to be free from am I doing that? It's not about just wanting to be free from hell, it's wanting to be free from sin. So that's why Peter could say, if you repent, if you turn from your sin and turn to God for mercy, then you'll be forgiven, which deals with hell, deals with forgiveness. But you'll also receive the Holy Spirit, which means you'll receive the power of God and the person of God to enable you to overcome sin in your life. And that's how we know we've really repented. If all I want to do is escape punishment, I haven't repented. But if I want to escape punishment and I want to escape sin, because I want to be with God, I want to please God, I want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven that is to come, then I've truly repented. And so um, that is the great reset that Peter is talking about here. And that's what he's describing is how these people truly repented of their sin and began to live a changed life. And they were living it in the midst of a perverse generation. Now, I mentioned to you that we live in a world that um, involves both the trial of suffering and the temptation of pleasure. And um, you can actually see that reflected in the parable of the soils. And in Matthew, for instance, if you read about the rocky soil, it talks about those who receive the word. And in a sense, you know, the plant springs up very quickly, but it doesn't last. It withers away very quickly. And they It says it withers away because of affliction and persecution that arises because of the word, which means it's because of the trial of of pain, some kind of pain, whether it was afflictions in general or persecution in particular. um, That plant didn't continue, didn't survive. And so that's one of the testings of our faith is pain. But another testing of our faith is pleasure. And that's why it could talk about the thorny soil, and especially in Luke 8, in the way it's described there, it talks about the fact that riches and concerns about the world and the pleasures of this life choke out our faith. Now, if you would turn to Revelation chapter chapter 2 and 3, and I'll just touch on this very briefly, but it's very important to realize that The kind of world we should expect to be in is a world that requires that we fight to overcome what is hitting us every day. 
And I think we we tend to be very weary. And sometimes we attribute our weariness simply to not getting enough sleep, not eating well, and you know various uh, things that we have to do. One of the things we may not recognize as Christians is a large part of our weariness in this world is because we're in a spiritual battle. Every day there is a spiritual battle in light of the trials of suffering, in light of the temptation to seduction. What I mean by seduction is to be drawn away from God and to go after the things of this world for satisfaction. And that's why you see at the end of all of these messages to the church, the Lord Jesus talks about overcoming. And we see in First John that that overcoming is done by faith, by trusting in the promises of God. But if you look at two, uh, chapter 2, verse 7, at the end of this letter, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Then at the end of the next letter, Revelation 2, 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Then verse 17, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. In verses 26 through 28, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And then in chapter 3, verse 5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And so seven different times, uh, the Lord says, he who overcomes, he who overcomes will be rewarded in this way. To overcome something means you have an obstacle to overcome. And basically, in light of the parable of the sower, you can divide that between pain and pleasure. There's pain to overcome, there's pleasure to overcome. That both of these could draw us away from Christ. And as I mentioned, the the testimony of uh, this man who just recently, a well-known person who just walked away from Christianity, uh, it's just another reminder of the fact that the Bible does talk about um, a falling away. And that falling away typically is rooted somehow in the issues of pain and pleasure. And sometimes maybe a combination of the two. And so, That's why, if you would, look at Joshua chapter 1. I know I'm giving you a lot of scripture here today, but I'm trying to lay a foundation for the rationale behind uh, living the way that Acts chapter 2 calls us to live. Um, The biblical context for living that way um, and the rationale for it. So I'm trying to lay a lot of groundwork here 
in various ways. But in Joshua chapter 1, Joshua and the people of Israel are about to go into the promised land. And they're going to fight giants, so to speak. Whether they were large people or large cities or just um, armies that were larger than their own. Uh, They were going to fight against things that could easily overwhelm them if they did not have the advantage. And what was the advantage? The advantage was God. And yet, even with the advantage being God, God tells Joshua how he needs to live. Um, In verse 6, it says, Be strong and courageous. Actually, God says this three different times just in verses 6 through 9. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I was watching a video with John MacArthur in it this week, and um, he talked about how he was uh, going around their church campus one Sunday after the children began to come back to church. And somebody commented on the fact that, you know, it's a terrible time for these little kids because... You know, they're growing up in such a, whatever uh, adjective they use, I'll use the word perverse generation. And John MacArthur's comment was, no, it's, it's the perfect time for them to grow up. They've been put here for, for just such a time as this. That they need not fear if they're following God, if they're trusting God. They don't need to be any more afraid than anyone else needs to be afraid. And that's what basically God is saying to Joshua. Joshua might be thinking, you're telling me I need to maintain my Bible study. Don't you think there's something else I need to do in light of the fact that I'm going into battle against these giant people with giant cities and giant armies? And, and you're telling me I need to be strong in the Word. I need to make sure that my life reflects what's in the Bible. That's exactly what God told him. He said, I'm with you, so you have the advantage. And you express your trust in me by giving yourself to living like I told you to live. And that's why you meditate on the Bible day and night, because you're thinking about, how does God's word tell me to live in this circumstance, in this day and time, in this perverse generation? And so my desire in all of this is to try to encourage us to remember some of the basics of what God calls us to in a world that seems to be more and more chaotic. What are the basics? And Acts chapter 2, if you can turn back there, is one of those passages in terms of practice that helps us to be reminded of some fundamental things that we need to keep in mind. In Acts chapter 2, what we find described there is life among the early Christians in Jerusalem. And what was going on right right after they were baptized and they began living together uh, as a Christian church. 
It follows the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. What's described here follows Pentecost and the preaching of Peter. But it precedes, if you read the rest of the book, it precedes persecution. What's going to happen to them in light of their testimony to Christ. It also precedes an account of the progress of the gospel. Because that's what the book is primarily about. Primarily about the progress of the gospel. At the very beginning of the book... Jesus says, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And then you find out how that transpires as you read the rest of the book. And so, basically, by looking at this little snapshot of the early church, we get a visual of how we're to live in light of the resurrection, in light of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and in view of oncoming persecution, and in view of desiring to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. And so you look at this and it gives us in various ways a vision for our life in very interesting times. And just very briefly, it highlights the issue of communication, obviously communicating the truth of the gospel. It encourages us to keep in mind the the importance of communion with God, fellowship with God publicly and privately. It emphasizes the need for community that the church was never meant simply to meet online. It was meant to be together. That's what church means, the gathering. And that we need to gather and we need to be in community, sharing our lives and sharing our gifts. It emphasizes compassion, being compassionate to those around us, especially in the church, but not only in the church, even in a perverse generation. And it emphasizes the need for embracing the common roles in our families, in our workplace, and in our world. And we'll look at those in a little more uh, detail as we go. But um, let me just wrap this up by highlighting the fact that um, what's going on in our country right now is very, very interesting because... um, it's the idea of if, if we can just get the world together, if we can just get all the nations to work together and everyone to work together, we can eradicate the, the virus, we can eradicate disease, we can eradicate all the bad things in the world, poverty and everything else, if we can just get together. And what is driving people's willingness to follow the leadership, whoever it may be, is a response to a crisis. The first crisis is COVID-19. But it's very clear that the real crisis that is going to be used to get people to unite is climate change. Because they're arguing that the reason why um, we need to unite and we need need to unite quickly is because if things don't change between now and 2030, we're, we're on the road to extinction That's exactly what they think. And the interesting thing is, because of the lockdowns around the world, um, and I'm quoting people who are in this great reset mindset, they would say that uh, global emissions were reduced by 7% worldwide. And the UN has said, in order for us not to um, extinguish ourselves here on Earth by 2030, We need to average a 7% drop in global emissions every year. So there's a reason why lockdowns aren't just about um, whether they're needed with regard to the virus. 
They're needed with regard to climate change. So what I'm saying is, a lot of what's being done is driven by a response to a crisis, whether it's real or not, or whether the response is legitimate or not. And therefore, it's a way of trying to garner greater control. Now, whether or not all this is going to play out for very long, who knows? It may just fall apart and we'll go back to normal, so to speak, or it may not fall apart. It might continue gaining steam. I don't know what the Lord is going to allow in this situation, but I know the way they're talking. And that's what I'm telling you is this is the way they're talking. They're talking like the Tower of Babel. (laughs) That's what they're talking like. And whether or not God disperses them, says, no, it's not going to happen right now or not, is yet to be seen. But the point that I want to make is, again, using the picture of the Lord of the Rings and um, the supposed hero, which is... um, Frodo, at the end, he goes into Mount Doom, and the ring represents evil. You could say for many people, it represents poverty, represents social injustices, represents disease, all those things. And um, Frodo represents mankind who is going to throw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom and destroy it all. But what happens in the story? Frodo, once he realizes that he's supposed to drop the ring in, decides, no, he likes the power that the ring offers, and he's going to keep it for himself. And it takes Gollum to ultimately destroy the ring. Evil it plays a role in the destruction of evil. But the point of the story that uh, Tolkien may have been making, I assume it had something to do with the fact that mankind in itself can never destroy evil. Mankind will always give in to evil, even with the best of intentions. They may go all the way to the point of Mount Doom, but in the end, evil will overcome sinful man, and they will not destroy evil. That's why no matter what uh, fallen mankind does, they will never establish utopia on earth. We see that in, in countries like the Soviet Union. That was their goal, utopia on earth but it resulted in some of the worst atrocities ever committed. Because that's what happens. The more power we get, the more we begin to abuse that power. And so we have to realize that that's the kind of world we live in. And some people are recommending some interesting things in in light of that. Um, For some people, they're uh, they're like... um, Captain Von Trapp and the Sound of Music. You're you're aware of that story where Austria is being taken over by the Nazis. And the Baroness asks um, Captain Von Trapp a question saying, you're far away, where are you? And he says, in a world that's disappearing, I'm afraid. In a world that's disappearing. Now, for some people, for a lot of Christians, they begin to look at what's going on in our country and they think, it's disappearing. The country that I've known, the country that I've wanted to be here is disappearing. What do I do? And some are advocating move to a red state. Some are advocating stock up on food and emergency preparations. Some are saying buy guns and ammo. Um, Some say join a conservative political movement. That's what you need to do. 
I'm not saying you can't do any of those things. That's up to you. It's not going to be anything wrong with doing any of those things. But that's not ultimately the answer. The Bible doesn't say move to a red state. doesn't say buy guns and ammo. doesn't say any of those things. But it does tell us how we're to respond to a perverse generation. And that's what's described to us in this passage. And we'll talk more about that next week. And we'll try to um, explain what I mean by being patient, being ordinary, being different, and being faithful in a perverse generation. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be afraid. At the same time, help us not to be blind to the kinds of pressures we live under. Pressures to walk away because of pain. Pressures to walk away because of pleasure. Help us, Father, to to be faithful in a perverse generation. Save us from a perverse generation. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to testify of Christ, to suffer for the gospel, to do whatever we have to do during this time for your glory and for the good of those around us. We thank you that we do not have to be afraid, but help us, Father, to to find all joy and peace in believing even as we seek to be faithful. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.